this network world of ours has produced a lot of great things, particularly the ability with uh, low probability interests to find other people who share the same interests. And uh, for a long while, that was the principal driving factor for people joining the online world, uh, but that it's metamorphosized into this, uh, in this money on money return machine, which hijacks our attention with dopamine paybacks for the purposes of selling us advertising. And that is bad. Hello, everybody. My name is Stephen Parton, and you are listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio. This week, our guest is businessman and entrepreneur Jim Rutt, who you may know as the former chairman of the Santa Fe Institute or from his own podcast, The Jim Rutt Show. For those of you who are not familiar with Jim, he is arguably the founding spearhead for a movement known as Game B, which we will discuss more deeply in the episode, but which I will quickly describe here simply as an alternative to the exploitive and zero-sum approach to society that we currently have. Beyond detailing the deeper specifics of Game B, this episode will explore Jim's thoughts on technology, which includes his 40 years of experience with online communities, his thoughts on social media moderation, including Musk's purchase of Twitter, the potential benefits of using digital IDs, and the numerous ways in which Game B principles can be utilized to improve all the technology we're currently using and will be using in the future. And finally, I do want to quickly warn listeners that if you're not a fan of profanity, this probably isn't the episode for you. Jim doesn't have much of a filter, and while that's no doubt a part of what makes him such a great thinker and an interesting conversationalist, it also means that some people may be quite put off by his blunt language. So just bear that in mind, but with that being said, let's jump into it. Everyone, please welcome to the feedback loop, Jim Rutt. Could you give us a conceptual definition and kind of explain what Game B is as a theory and a practice for those who might not be familiar with it? Uh, sure, real easy. The uh, uh, the idea of Game B is it's not Game A, right? <laughs> and Game A is the is the current, uh, shall we call it, the status quo engine of our world, which uh, Game B thinking uh, believes is heading for disaster. Uh, and I always like to point out that uh, Game A, at least in my version of the story, uh, has done a tremendous amount of good for humanity. Uh, I fairly arbitrarily uh, set the current epoch of Game A as starting around 1700. Uh, in 1700, the world's population was about 650 million people, less than a tenth of what it is today. 50% of the kids died by the time they were five. Most people lived in houses with dirt floors, no windows, and in the temperate zone uh, were uh, constantly suffering from respiratory ailments uh, because they didn't have you know, decent fireplaces, uh, didn't have glass in the windows, didn't even have windows. You know, life kind of sucked. You know, the trade that humanity made down, getting going down the road to agriculture, uh, you know, turned out to not actually be a good deal up until around 1700. Uh, and around then, uh, three things came together in England and uh, Netherlands, essentially. And those were modern science, you know, think of Newton and Boyle and the lads having a good time in the 17th century. God damn, that would have been fun to be able to yeah, make those. Would. I mean, you know, you know, with a couple hundred bucks worth of equipment, make primary discoveries. Damn, you know, no, no, no CERNs or anything like that necessary to, to do the stuff that Boyle did and Newton did. Uh, and then uh, democracy, actually, or self-rule. Uh, I generally put the start of that. I mean, it's arbitrary, but I, 1688, you know, when the glorious revolution in England, when uh, William and Mary came over from the Netherlands, by the way, uh, and uh, had a limited monarchy, and parliament was clearly dominant from that point forward. And then in 1694, uh, through a series of flukes, the king needed money and uh, made a deal with some rich dudes that returned for a massive loan. It gave them the right to print money, uh, the Bank of England. And that was the precursor of modern finance. Uh, and keep in mind, all this was before the Industrial Revolution, really, right? Uh, and the three together 
you know, freedom to do your thing, not under the thumb of some feudal lord, uh, you know, science. Oh, what the hell? How does this work? What are the laws of thermodynamic shit, right? Uh, and then uh, finance, the ability to get money mobilized out of thin air, frankly, using fractional reserve ba banking, uh, allowed the Industrial Revolution to start taking off initially in uh, England and then quickly in the Netherlands and Belgium and then spread across the world. And uh, and so as these three elements of game B came together, it accelerated, 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 and uh, just and basically created the world we have today. The problem in it, but it's built on these things that accelerate, and it has no breaks. That's mm -hmm. the fundamental problem with game A. Uh, did great things for humanity, uh, you know. Uh, children live a lot, much more likely to, you know, to live to adulthood. Uh, we have glass, we have modern dentistry, we have thermostats, you know, all good shit that we don't want to give up, but it doesn't know when to stop. And, uh, you know, that crazy shit, like inventing the atomic bomb. What the yeah. fuck, right? Did we really need the atomic bomb? No. You know, for the first time, uh, you know, we could actually do serious damage to our civilization uh, in a few minutes. Oh, dear. Not a good idea. Uh, and then we continue to, uh, you know, ramp up, ramp up, ramp up, uh, you know, and, you know, people don't talk about it much, but the uh, Haber-Bosch process developed in the early 20th century to create uh, uh, nitrogen out of the atmosphere into fertilizer mm. uh, is what really allowed us to break through two and a half, three million hum billion humans on Earth. And of course, since World War II, we just keep laying on the fertilizer heavier and heavier. And without all that fertilizer, we could not support, at least at the current uh, levels of technologies we have, the eight plus billion people we have. So we're kind of on that escalator as well. Uh, and of course, uh, not only do we have you know, lifestyles of the West and the Americas and the Anglophone uh, places like Australia, et cetera. But now we have 6 billion people that aspire to that, yeah. right? And if that actually happens, you know, game over, at least at our current level of technology. And I do point out that, you know, uh, uh, get fusion energy power, uh, you know, some, uh, there, there, there are potential technological fixes, but they're, they're not on the horizon today that allow us to live the way we live. And for a, a world of 8 billion people, you'll crush the biosphere. In fact, many calculations show that we overshot the carrying capacity of the earth probably in the 70s. And we continue to impinge on soil, on uh, species. The ocean is in a horrible state. Most of the top uh, fish populations are down 90% or more the you know top predator fish the ones we like to eat the salmon and the tuna and what have you uh, and you know we're in the fifth ex great extinction of uh, of species uh, across many taxa etc and so uh, you know game a is just running out of gas and then recently i would suggest uh, some of the inventions of uh, game A are starting to drive us seemingly literally crazy uh, and so something has seriously gone wrong and it's that this game A, which was the greatest invention humanity ever uh, created, bootstrapped us from dirt floors and dead children and uh, respiratory diseases all the time to, hey, not bad, doesn't know where it stops, overshot the limits, and it's going to kill us. And so game B, game B is literally reinventing a set of social operating systems, dynamics, essentially dynamic systems, that is compatible with 8 billion people living on Earth uh, well within the human carrying capacity uh, of our species, and that would be metastable for hundreds of years at least. And by metastable, we're not, you know, don't, you know, don't think of it as stasis at all. Things are constantly changing, new inventions are coming along, new ideas, so, yeah, it'll continue to evolve, cool things will happen. Yeah. The other thing, and this is where, where, why Game A has not been able to get off uh, the track, uh, is that uh, even though it is doing in its later stages, some bad things with human well-being, right? You know, even here in the richest parts of the world, look at teen suicide, mental health, what percentage of uh, teenage kids are taking psychoactive drugs for mental health issues? Because our society is literally driving them, them crazy. Uh, so uh, Game B will, one, operate on much less uh, energy and material intensity, but at the same time will produce greater human well-being. And in fact, we have uh, recently Peter Wang, one of our collaborators, uh, CEO of Anaconda, uh, came up with a very cool uh, formula we call three by three. Uh, we'll cut our material energetic consumption by a factor of three, and we'll increase our human well-being by a factor of three. Uh, and you go, hmm, 
Uh, so how do we increase our human well-being? So what, what's gone wrong with human well-being? Well, uh, specifically since 1870 or thereabouts in the, uh, in the most advanced countries, a little bit later elsewhere, uh, the traditional way of life has been destroyed, uh, which uh, I like to call the mesosphere, uh, the meso layer. Uh, meso meaning medium in the middle. And uh, you know, that is the face-to-face -face communities that we used to live in, in uh, mostly agricultural-based or small manufacturing villages uh, in many parts in the West and in other parts of the world, often extended families, places that have cousin marriage. Uh, there's typically, you know, uh, extended families live together in villages. Uh, and interestingly, in both uh, organizational models, uh, the uh, third Dunbar number applies, about 150, 150 adults, uh, which turns out to be about the level that we can cognitively manage without too much bureaucracy, uh, is how we live. And starting around 1870, uh, those things were broken up by industrialization, mechanized farming, which drove people off the land, uh, et cetera. And so instead of live communities of face-to-face -face real humanness, uh, we traded that for two sterile uh bits of social machinery, the market and the government, right? And yeah, they kept us from starving, right? They kept us from being robbed and raped by bandits, et cetera. But oh, by the way, you know, the, the whole idea of police didn't even exist until about 1825 with the invention of the London Metropolitan Police Department. We used to be able to deal with criminals without a, without a bureaucracy, right? Uh, and so this trade turned out to uh, you know, kind of worked at the margin, but it ended up leading us to a bad place. And so the game B hypothesis is how do we do this swing from one, th use one third of the inputs and get three times the, uh, the well-being, which is to return to the mesoscale community and to build society from the bottom up in cells of about 150 adults, uh, which we currently call protobees. And uh, we're working on what that actually means. How do people govern themselves in a non-hierarchical, self-organizing, well, I would say non-hierarchical, self-organizing fashion in which the people are always in control, uh, that there's a high amount of plur uh, pluralism, different proto-bees could be quite different. Uh, you know, one could be organized like a Victorian village, right? Another one could be a mad sex cult, right? And as long as they uh, adhere to the basic game B principles of three by three, both are legitimate manifestations of game B. Uh, and, and, another, and interestingly, uh, one of the things we, oh, from this from the beginning, 2013, uh, that game B is not utopian. There will never be a book that says, this is how you do it, God damn it. On the other hand, there'll be lots of horizontal sharing as people discover things that work. Oh, here's a way to do uh, sewage treatment using, uh, you know, uh, microorganisms and plants and stuff like that. Oh, it worked over here, probably work over there. It might not work over here because climatic conditions are different. Uh, and so we see it kind of like the horizontal transfer that happened in, in bacterial communities where the DNA moves horizontally uh, in real time and not necessarily, you know, kind of linear Darwinian type uh, evolution that we're more used to. So that's a real short intro to the idea. Uh, to get a sense of the vibe, we have put a movie out recently oh, nice. uh, that uh, you can see at gamebfilm.org. Uh, it'll also provide at that site a link to our online communities where you can, as we say, find the others and start to play game B. What what are some of the key features that you would say distinguish game B from game A in terms of uh, the, the practicalities? When I think of game A, I typically think of uh, hyper competitive, hyper competitive, hyper individualistic, probably alienated, um, and it has a win-loss aspect to it. And where I think of game B, I think more of a win-win situation that has more cooperation and more community at, at its focus. Is that, are those fair? Yeah, pretty damn close. Pretty, that, okay. that's, that's quite good. Okay. Uh, you know, and the other one that you miss, uh, which is, I think, fundamental, actually, okay. literally fundamental, uh, which is a, a deep sense of security, right? Mm -hmm. uh, game A goes out of its way to create cultivated insecurity. Uh, you know, my days when I was a highly paid corporate executive, I was wise. I just lived the way I always lived and uh, put huge amounts of money in the bank. But I had people who I worked with who were making literally a million dollars a year and spending a million one, right? They were precarious. Why the fuck would anybody do that? But there are a lot of people that do. Uh, and, uh, you know, game A cultivates that. And the, and the way it cultivates it, one of the ways, and and by the way, when I say game A does, I'm not implying a conspiracy. I'm, I'm implying an emergent 
evolutionary memeplex, essentially, essentially, that just is. You can't blame it on anybody. Uh, you know, Peter Thiel and the Koch brothers are not sitting in the back room manipulating everybody. Uh, this shit just happened. And it happened for every step along the way made sense, right? Uh, but, but we've evolved into this thing uh, that uh, the egregore is the, like one of the current terms for the kind of an emergent memeplex that is uh, kind of a meta operating system for, for a society. Uh, and uh, and so, but it's, so it's built in insecurity. And mm -hmm. it's uh, one of the key drivers is status through possessions, right? Right. If you define yourself in having more shiny shit uh, or positional goods, like, oh, yeah, I got a fucking original Vermeer. Oh, dude, aren't I cool? Right. Uh, and you think that that actually makes you a, a better person or more likely to get laid or whatever the hell your metric is, uh, then you're on this endless hedonic treadmill of more, 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 and you're never satisfied. As it turns out, the, uh, you know, the little hits of uh, dopamine that our systems are set up uh, to provide don't last, right? You know, look at the history of people who hit the lottery, literally $50 million. Most of them are miserable and broke again in four or five yeah. years. Uh, it's pretty funny. Uh, while in the game B land, we're about self-actualization, about becoming the best people, the most interesting people, the most social convivial people, you know, someone that can tell a great joke at a community beer bash uh, will have a lot more status than some ass clown that drives up in a Porsche. Uh, instead, you know, the person who is, you know, the kindest, most empathetic person will have status in that dimension. The, uh, the person who, uh, you know, you know, knows how to do flower arrangements for uh, the, for each uh, social event. And mm -hmm. then Game B lands we imagine, as being full of social events and ceremonies and holidays. There'll be a holiday at least once a week, right? Uh, and uh, major holidays, uh, monthly, quarterly, and annually. And, uh, and, and this is how people used to live, right? This is the the meso scale that we foolishly traded away for shiny objects starting around 1870. So, uh, so secure and, and then then secure cure thing security. So once I cultivated insecurity uh, in game A, in game B, once you're in game B, you will never be homeless, no matter whatever happens to you. In the same way, nobody was ever homeless who lived in an agricultural village in you know the English Midlands. You know somebody always puts you up in their attic and feed you, and you know and, you, and your job would be to uh, you know you know be pleasant to people or something, right? Uh, and and meso scale, nobody starved in places that weren't having an actual famine, and yet you go to San Francisco, the richest city in the fucking world, in some sense. Right. And what do you see? Thousands of people wallowing in their own shit. Right. It's fucking depraved. Uh, I mean, if you, if you want evidence that game A is literally insane and is way, way, way past its sell by date, just go to San Francisco and walk around. Right. Yeah. Uh, that will never happen in game B. Well, well, speaking of San Francisco and, and your current point about tech, the, the way I think technology was making us all crazy. What is technology's role in this process of maybe perpetuating game A or helping us get to game B? Because right now it feels like what technology is doing is a lot of um, exacerbating game A's problems by making people, you know, attention focused. They want, ad we're, we're making admiration and likes and follows and building influencers, uh, which is more about that extrinsic motivation, not about somebody becoming intrinsically self-actualized. A lot of what technology seems to be doing right now is saying, Get more money with crypto. Do get more attention with social media. NFTs, yeah, whoa. Yes. Exactly. So yeah, it's fucked up big time. How how, how do we maybe shift that technology? Or is, do you see that happening? Well, if it doesn't, we're fucked. Right? So, <laughs> uh, so I'm assuming I'm assuming that we'll make the shift, right? Yeah. And uh, and you describe it very well. I mean, we this late 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 stage game A where we have learned how to let computers teach themselves through our data to apply dopamine uh, bribes to hijack our attention is fucking degenerate as shit, right? Uh, and you start looking at the teen suicide statistics. I looked at um, a couple, a few months ago, I decided to take a look at one of these new things, uh, something called TikTok. <laughs> and as a person who has des been designing online products since 1981, I said, dude, somebody invented fentanyl. 
right? Oh, yep. I, I said, this is it. I don't know if it gets many better than this, right? In terms of uh, malicious game A-ism, right? Uh, I, I used it four times and then deleted it off my phone, right? Uh, and, uh, and I think, frankly, we have to learn to have socially reinforced discernment about these technologies. Because, uh, you know, game B is not Ludite, right? I mm -hmm. expect game B to have highly automated agricultural systems, to have, uh, you know, really smart uh, protocols for, uh, for collaboration, uh, virtual ledgers for uh, money systems, uh, liquid democracy, maybe if people like it for, uh, you know, ways to self-govern, et cetera. And all those things require technology. On the other hand, uh, I'll be goddamn, we're going to have TikTok in game B, right? Fuck no. Uh, and, you know, personally, um, you know, I wrote an interesting paper called Reclaiming Our Cognitive Sovereignty, which tell the story about how I analyzed my own addiction to smartphones, figured out what I actually needed from a smartphone, which turned out to be nothing, uh, and built the replacements for them, uh, and then kicked the smartphone habit and went back to a flip phone. Right. Uh, and then uh, I will confess, I fell off the wagon after six months when, when my flip phone died. But it was an interesting experiment. The, uh, the essay is up on Medium and uh, full of all kinds of scientific research about uh, the addictive nature of smartphones. And the other thing I do is um, I'm currently in a nine month social media sabbatical. Uh, every year uh, for the last five years, it's been six months. Uh, six months on social media, six months off, typically January 1st through 1st of July on, and then the second half of the year off. This year, I got so disgusted by social media, I said, fuck it, I'm starting my sabbatical April 1st. And so it's going to, for a while, it's going to be nine months off, three months on. And and frankly, the only reason I am the three months on is because, you know, I do have my podcasts, and my essays, and I have to do a certain amount of Mr. Public Personality and propaganda and marketing and shit like that. Uh, but if I didn't, I probably would just say, fuck that shit entirely and be done with it. Right. Uh, and on the other hand, I expect we will have game B. Uh, things that are metaphorically similar to social media, perhaps, allow people to self-organize, find people they want to collaborate with. Because, oh, by the way, this network world of ours has produced a lot of great things, particularly the ability with uh, low probability interests to find other people who share the same interests. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I started... Uh, helping build the consumer online world in 1980. I went to work for a company called The Source, which was the very first consumer online service. And uh, for a long while, that was the principal driving factor for people joining the online world was, all right, I'm a Packard uh, collector, you know, old kind of car. And there ain't many around where I live here in some, you know, small town in Eastern Kentucky, but on a, you know, nationwide basis, there's a bunch of uh, Packard collectors. And hey, we can hang out together online and uh, we can trade carburetors with each other and things like that. That's a wonderful use for technology, uh, but that it's metamorphosized into this uh, this money on money return machine, which hijacks our attention with dopamine paybacks for the purposes of selling us advertising. Yeah. And that is bad. And, and there are ways to live not that way. Uh, one that we learn from in game B are the Mennonites and the Amish, right? Contrary to the popular opinion, they aren't Ludites either, uh, but they make very careful uh, local decisions on what technologies uh, to adopt, typically after considerable discussion and debate, sometimes goes on for years. You know, classically, uh, milking machines, a lot of them are in the dairy farming business. Uh, and, and some, uh, a few said no to milking machines, most said yes. Uh, as an example, but it took two or three years, right? Uh, and then, all right, once you have milking machines, you're producing milk in bulk. Well, that means you need refrigeration. So, oh, shit, that means, what about electricity? Uh, and some said, okay, generators only. And then other communities said, all right, you can have electricity, but only to your dairy barn to run the refrigeration uh, for your uh, uh, mass-captured milk, uh, and et cetera. So, so, and each, so each community, if, about 25 families makes these decisions over a period of years. And I would expect that game B proto Bs will also make those decisions. And here's also something very, very important about the transition. Uh, a very small number of people, uh, frankly, including most of the game B players today, which might be about 30,000 or so by our best calculation, um, are kind of very independent, disagreeable folks uh, who are able to break free of game A, irrespective of what their fucking neighbors think, right? But 98% of people ain't that way. 
98% of people uh, need the reinforcement of the norms and values of their community to stay in sync. And it's one of the reasons why we think it's so critical to build these on the ground communities. Uh, I was chatting with my daughter uh, a few weeks ago and it's brought, it brought up a perfect example. We have a new granddaughter, she'll be two soon. Uh, great kid, of course, right? Uh, and uh, uh, my daughter is very, very aware of these things, uh, is you know, sort of driving herself crazy already. What happens when her best friend shows up at age seven with a smartphone? Right. Because, yeah. you know, our daughter's intent would be, you know, no smartphones till you're 18, probably. Uh, maybe you get a flip phone when you're 11 or 12. Right. Um, and but your best friend and all the people in your social network do all their interaction uh, on smartphones. God, what the hell kind of fucking, you know, you don't want to isolate your kid from their peer group on the same, on the other hand, you don't want to give them, give them something that's clearly worse for them than cigarettes at age of seven. Uh, if you lived in a community where that was just something nobody would ever do, it's a non-question. So uh, the, you know, this, we think very, very important is that living in a place where you have a shared set of values of a game B sort, make it much easier for the 98% of normal people, not, you know, crazed nuts like uh, myself, uh, to be able to make the transition uh, uh, to game B and stay in it. And so it's this idea of values and community kind of have to co-evolve together and they'll get more purely game B over time, right? We yeah. don't expect uh, people to be, be able to make, you know, giant leaps, you know, again, uh, in my venture business, and then my, uh, you know, uh, venture uh, capital businesses afterwards, I always had a sale saying, you can't jump up a cliff, right? Uh, there has to be a path uh, to get from one place to the other. And, uh, you know, having letting relatively normal people uh, being living together with other reasonably normal people who have all agreed collectively to follow a set of values that are quite different than game A, uh, will make it way easier for them to collectively stick to that agreement. That's our hypothesis. Yeah, let's talk about one of those communal paths that seem to be so dominant in the smartphone and internet age, which is Twitter, social media, and online communities in general. You recently wrote an article, I believe, called Musk in Moderation, where you talk about uh, Musk's potential purchase of Twitter, and you know you reflect on your, I think, 40 years plus of online moderation. What do you think about the way that online communities play into all of this, and what do you think about Musk's purchase and where this is taking us? Well, I think Musk's purchase is probably a good thing. We'll see. Uh, if uh, he follows my advice, God damn it, right? Which is, uh, you know, some of the things he's said subsequently maybe uh, think that he may be heading for a train wreck. You know, you know, he has said, my only standard will be, is it legal? Right. Uh, and I go, well, Elon, that ain't going to work. I'll give you an example. Uh, you have uh, a, a small group of people, you know, talking about uh, and arguing in classic uh, online fashion about their favorite basketball team. Uh, and one of the participants is black and five of them are white. And so one of the guys says, F U U N word right? Mm -hmm. Perfectly legal, as it turns out, in the United States, not in some other countries. Uh, but that's legal. And to my mind, that would be a gross dereliction of duty uh, to have an online system where something like that could, could occur. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, I put forth in that essay, the concept of decorum. Uh, and quite, and I propose that literally be like a law code, that there be a, a hierarchically organized uh, set of decorum rules, uh, which says thou shalt not uh, use racial slurs uh, targeted at other members. In fact, I go further in my own, if I have my own system uh, and say no personal attacks. And this is what I mean when I say personal attacks, right? And in fact, in our game B online system, we have the 10 commandments. And one of them is no personal attacks. And there's a, you know, a dot section, the equivalent of the hierarchical code that says anyone that uses an obscene uh, language against another member will be expelled immediately, right? Uh, no warnings, nothing. This is black and white. You violate this law, boom, you're done. Uh, and so I think that this is hugely important. 
Uh, and again, this comes from 40 years of experience all the way back. Uh, if you don't have rules for decorum, it'll turn to a shit show every fucking time. If you have a general public that isn't organized around a specific mission. Uh, and, uh, and this is also important, you know, in the in the groups on Facebook, say, for instance, uh, groups can often uh, get by with relatively light uh, moderation because they're organized around a mission uh, and being ostracized out of the group is punishment enough, right, in, in many cases. And in Facebook, uh, they give the group admins that power. Uh, but it's in the public square that the problems arise principally. Think about the non-group parts of Facebook. Think of all of Twitter. Twitter is the one major system that has no uh, subspaces at all. Uh, the other extreme is Reddit, where it's all subspaces, uh, for instance, right? <laughs> Facebook's sort of halfway in between. And so it's in the public square that I'm really talking about that uh, you need the equivalent of law and order, but only on decorum not on point of view. Uh, you know, if people want to talk about QAnon, let them talk about QAnon, so long as they do so respectfully without personal attack. Uh, and, you know, talk about goofy ass ideas about COVID, like ivermectin as the cure-all or something. Let them talk about it, right? Uh, you know, on the other hand, feel free to challenge them, make them put up or shut up. Yeah. Uh, and uh, But make sure everybody is polite with each other. And that's and how you... Can, and that's how you balance free speech with moderation so that Correct. you can continue. You can talk about anything yeah. you want, so long as you do it uh, within the rules of decorum. Uh, and, and I think that that is close to the sweet spot. Now, I also added a third category, uh, but I would hope it to be small on most systems, which is inherently dangerous things, right? Uh, and as an example I gave was, you know, instructions on how for teenagers to uh, uh, not let their parents know that they want to commit suicide, you know, things like that, how to make poison, you know, how to make bombs. Uh, uh, no, I think there's probably places online where you should have that kind of information. Uh, but, the, but in terms of the general open public square, I think it's perfectly reasonable for the operators of those public squares to say inherently dangerous things uh, we, we will ban those. Uh, or uh, direct advocacy of serious crimes. And the reason I add serious crimes is I think uh, traditional civil disobedience crimes, you should be able to advocate for those, right? You know, having an anti-war demonstration without a permit, for instance, or, uh, you know, even blockading a draft, uh, you know, a, an army recruiting office, illegal, uh, but it's a misdemeanor. Uh, and I think that people should be allowed to advocate for uh, civil disobedience grade crimes, uh, even in the public square, but probably not go rob a bank or go uh, assassinate this governor, uh, something like that. So again, and these things should be quite specific. Uh, and so that people can look up in the rule book and see what are the current rules on this system. And, and we need that looseness right within the, the uh, decorum rules, because that's kind of how we get fringe thinkers and innovators who continually push us forward as a society, right? Yeah. In fact, the analogy, um, that uh, somebody came up with, I thought it was a great one, which is the garage band analogy, right? Uh, you know, most garage bands suck, uh, but if we didn't have garage bands, popular music would not move forward. Uh, and in the same way, you know, original uh, socio-political economic thinking or aesthetics or anything else, most of it sucks, most of it's idiotic, right? Uh, but uh, one of the things we learned from complexity science, which I spent the last 20 years studying, really, really hard to say what ideas really suck, right? When they're small and tiny and new, and we don't really fully understand how our whole world's going to unfold. Uh, the other model I call is the green shoots model. You know, if you're uh, the area along the edge of a forest, there's all kinds of stuff coming up. Some of it's a lot of it's shit. Some of it's good, uh, but you won't know what it is till it comes up. Uh, and so you can't just go around with Roundup, kill everything. You know, you'll have, you'll have a very sterile, nasty place. So, uh, you know, uh, let things bloom and uh, the marketplace of ideas will eventually sort things out. Yeah, think, you know, goofy ass shit like QAnon will exist for longer than we might like, uh, but I would be very surprised if Q QAnon still around 20 years from now. And I'm perfectly willing to accept uh, a couple hundred thousand people believing utter horseshit. Help me help. I think I'm a number of people that believe in Christianity, right? Total horseshit as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and yet I'm willing to tolerate Christianity so long as uh, I, I can also float ideas like Game B. Yep. In terms of 
empower in that sense of decorum. What do you think about the idea of creating something like digital IDs or having people verify their ID before accessing something like a Twitter, even if they can be anonymous once they're on, what do you think about them having to verify that ID to get in? Yeah. I am very strongly in favor of it. Uh, okay. And in fact, if I ran, my, in fact, I do run my own system, or at least I'm the lead admin. And there we have a rigorous real ID only, right? So you have to use your actual name. I've also been a member of a, a kind of an interesting ancient online system called The Well. Uh, it's probably the oldest surviving online community, still exists, uh, well.com, been running since 1985. Uh, and it's essentially a whole bunch of forums, hundreds of them, uh, some of the highest quality content online you'll ever find. Uh, and oh, by the way, uh, full disclosure, I'm a minority owner of the damn thing. I think I own 15% of it or something. Uh, a bunch of the users got together and bought it from its parent when the parent was going to shut it down. So uh, no one's getting rich off it, I can tell you. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah. but anyway, it's a wonderful, uh, a wonderful place. And it's always been real name only. And they actually call you up on the phone and verify that you are who you say you are beyond just the credit card. So uh, they have a pretty high know your customer idea. And personally, I think in many cases, that's superior. On the other hand, uh, in the public square where people might get, uh, say, in a totalitarian society, uh, and ours isn't far from that on, on occasion, uh, you may might want to have so-called pseudonymity, which is that what you alluded to, uh, which is uh, there's a proof uh, on the system. There's only one person, uh, one actual human per identity. So reputational costs can occur if you're an asshole, right? Uh, but you don't have to expose who you are in real life. And I think that is the correct place for a system like Twitter is pseudonymity, but he's pseudonymity backed by proof of humanity and only one human per pseudonym and only one pseudonym per human. Uh, I think that that provides the sweet spot for uh, the necessary uh, protection of real world identities for some people. Uh, and at the same time, isn't the open shit show that uh, Twitter historically was. You know, they've kind of cracked down sort of maybe somewhat about that, uh, but not very much. You can still, you know, I got God knows how many Twitter IDs I have. Fuck, right? <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, that's that's where I'd come out. Uh, yeah. and, and this goes back again, 40 years experience. I mean, one of the very first precursors to social media on the source in 1982 it was called Participate. And we ran two versions in parallel, one where you had to have your real name and the other where you could be completely anonymous and have multiple IDs. Well, guess what? The one that was totally anonymous, multiple IDs turned into a dumpster fire, prodigious proportions. And we closed it down after about a month. Uh, and this is at the very dawn of online, right? So you couldn't blame it on Trump or you couldn't blame it on hyper-partisanship or anything else. You could just blame it on human fucking nature, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, with speaking of the human nature, I mean, I think that's one of the biggest issues with social media right now and the it's momentum that it gives to game a is the fact that it doesn't have a social cost to it. It doesn't create those evolutionary checks on us because it doesn't hold us accountable. We don't We don't have that town square accountability that we have where people would eventually be like, you know, this guy's kind of an asshole. Let's just stop including him in our conversations. Yeah. That doesn't happen anymore. So we, it feels like we need some ways to kind of build in, whether it's through algorithms, flagging people who have bad decorum or creating, I don't know about rating systems per se, but some kind of way to, to hold people accountable and build an incentive for positive behavior as opposed to negative behavior. And I think, you know, there are some really cool user uh, side tools to do that. Like, I would love to be able to um, uh, grade the links to various people, right? Uh, which is, all right, if X says anything, oh, and actually, here's the moment, it would be really lovely. And we're getting to the point where now it's probably practical. Uh, you know, if Steven says something about, uh, you know, classical music, then plus five. I definitely want to hear about that. But if Stephen uh, says something about politics, minus five. He doesn't know a goddamn thing about politics, right? Uh, and to be able to build that kind of personal connection graph with your so-called online friends, I think would be amazing, right? And then, you know, Stephen starts being an asshole about classical music. Well, I reduce him from plus five to plus two. Uh, let's see how, uh, oh, it gets even worse. Oh, he's a minus five. Fuck that, right? Uh, and so be able to, uh, and then in some sense, uh, you're not having a system systemic 
uh, thing like a social credit score, which could be very dangerous, uh, but you're essentially having an emergent effect from everybody making individual decisions about the quality of the links that they are establishing. Yeah. And, I, and that's here's something else. And this is, I call this education, but of course you can also build into the system. Uh, one of the things that plagues Facebook and Twitter uh, in particular is how easy it is to share or retweet, right? Uh, people don't realize that, that is a that's a moral obligation. When you make a retweet, you should morally say, is this action good for the world? Uh, and if it's not, don't fucking do it. Uh, now you could build some, uh, some helpers into that. Like, for instance, you could just pop that up every time someone says retweet. Do you believe this is good for the world? Yes or no? And there's a fair bit of, of research that indicates that those kind of little nudges actually make a big difference. Yeah. Uh, the other thing you could do is very substantially limit the number of retweets one or two a day maybe right uh, and maybe if you've proven through a long period of time of being a high fidelity retweeter maybe that gradually grows based on other people's ranking of you just the way we just talked right uh maybe it grows to five eventually but uh but you know uh you know very very promiscuous retweeting for no good reason at all just because it hit your do dopamine button is very very bad and in fact that's uh you know how the the shit storms on uh, Twitter and Facebook uh, get started when people uh, retweet things without discernment. Yeah. So would you would you support something where we maybe make uh, the newsfeed algorithms open source and allow yes. people more customization? Yeah. Yeah, I talked about that uh, in the essay and also in some of the podcasts that I've had. In other words, I like not only do I like to have an open source, but as you indicated, I'd go one step further than Elon has proposed and have a marketplace of. Uh, of uh, algorithms uh, and and that they'd all be open source, right? And so you can see what they are and you can choose them. I want one that's, you know, pretty flat. I want one that has this very interesting feature that we talked about of, you know, uh, modulated weighted links, et cetera. And then uh, one of the podcasts I did with uh, Brett Weinstein, he came up with a really brilliant idea, which is uh, if you could, uh, it, it, people would have to publish which algorithm they use and you could put yourself in their shoes quite literally for a day or two. I'm, how does uh, Kim Kardashian see the world? Let me uh, walk in Kim Kardashian's algorithm for a couple of days. I'll probably go insane, but what the fuck, right? Uh, and so there's a lot of interesting things you can do when you have a, a transparent open source uh, marketplace of, uh, of algorithms. I would absolutely love that because I feel like people would want would feel incentivized and want to walk in other people's shoes to say they did it. But yep. through the process of doing that, whether they planned on it or not, would kind of have to empathize with that person. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And when Brett said that, I said, God damn it, this is one of the best ideas I've heard in a while. Right. It's just that. Do you think we'll actually see any of these features come down the line, though? I mean, with stock with uh, stockholders kind of incentivized to, to profit in ways that are at the cost of well-being that kind of make, maybe make a negative three on well-being. Do you think we'll really see this happen? Not without some major, major, major reforms or a maniac like uh, Elon Musk who doesn't give a fuck, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, if I was the richest dude in the world, I might do something like this too, right? Which is, yeah. I'm just going to do the right thing. And he said explicitly, he does not care about the economic return. Uh, we'll see if he can actually stick to that. Uh, but that's one of the, and that's, that's frankly why I'm, yeah, I'm afraid that he might drive into a, a ditch. But on the other hand, a guy who really is willing to do this not for economic return has at least the starting point to do the right thing. Because frankly, if you're out to maximize shareholder value, you should be fucking Zuckerberg, right? Just the worst goddamn evil motherfucker imaginable. Uh, and uh, uh, that actually is the economically correct answer in the current state. And whoever the hell came up with the fentanyl called TikTok, you know, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's what game a leads us to TikTok. And actually, I don't know if it exists yet, but somebody no doubt will produce an X-rated version of TikTok. And then uh, we may, the doomsday clock may, might well be at 1159.59 at that point. Do you, do you think that government should get involved with this at all? Or do you think this is something that should take place in the commons do you think that we should have regulatory bodies doing this or should we ask the grassroots to really champion these changes i think we have to uh at the in the current state of game anus we have to do we have to provide some scaffolding top down 
it would be nice if we could do it all bottom up, but it's not realistic. The, the big players are just too goddamn big. They're too psychologically astute. Uh, we're too stupid. Uh, we're confronting computers smarter than the ones that, uh, that beat Casper off at chess. Right. Uh, that are being pointed at us to exploit our uh, our uh, our ape-like features, and always keep in mind we're just fucking apes with clothes, right? It's always be also useful to to remember that. So I would uh, be willing, as much as I hate government, and I do, I would be willing to do some of it top down, uh, and but but only for large things. The and I think in my uh, essay I said. Uh, Systems that have uh, more than 25 million uniques, unique visitors per month uh, ought to be mandated to have the following set of uh, moderation rules and appeals that are available and open source the algorithm and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so I think, yep, yeah, in the current uh, place where we're at, uh, the only way to turn that ship around uh, in, in any time soon uh, would be uh, by government regulation. And that is, you know, the point of democracy after all, right? Uh, the economy is not the reason we have a society, right? Uh, we have a society first and, the, and, and think about the idea of a furnace in your basement. It's there to heat your house. On the other hand, fire uh, with no constraints on it can burn your house down in your whole neighborhood. And so with that, the idea of money on money return uberalis is the essence of the pathology of late day, say since 1971, uh, game A, uh, where, uh, Everything is denominated in terms of money on money return. That's just fucking nuts. You know, the United States was not built for that, uh, nor has any civilization survived very long for that. Yeah. And I mean, it's ultimately going to backfire anyway, right? Because if you do that, eventually you undermine the well being of the citizens so much that they don't create, they don't become productive. They end up revolting. You have civil disobedience and the guillotine start to, start to clank, right? Yep. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, I have. Uh, uh, a, a beautiful hand illustrated picture of three guillotines with lopped heads and somebody holding one up, which I post periodically on both Facebook and Twitter when people say something very, very Davos, Davos man like. I just post that and that's all I post. Yeah. Uh, I say that, you know, this is where your policy will lead. And that's your head they're holding up there, asshole. Yep. Just a friendly <laughs> reminder. Just a friendly reminder that this is where it usually ends. Right? So how do you see or how would you recommend the average person kind of get involved in Game B actions? What, what are some of the things they can do to kind of champion Game B ideas and start this switch? Yeah, we lay this out in a paper called A Journey to Game B, available on Medium. I was the author of it, though it had some a substantial amount of input from other Game B thinkers. And, and some things you should, you should do. First and foremost, start cleaning up your financial life, right? Uh, you don't want the Game A debt collectors coming after you in Game B. So, uh, you know, just, just take, frankly, just take any of the, the guides about personal finance, about radical down, downsizing of expenditure, start doing that. Uh, start to program yourself and find other people to help you reinforce it to get away from the status through possessions, right? Uh, don't have fancy fucking cars. There's one right there. Get rid of your fancy fucking cars, right? You know, I'm, I'm a zillionaire. I'll say it fucking out loud. And I drive a fucking beat up Jeep, right? And a pickup truck. <laughs> and uh, yes, did I have fancy cars in days of yore? I had some, but uh, not uh, excessive numbers. Get rid of your fucking fancy cars. No Porsches, no BMWs, no Mercedes. God damn it. Right there, right? Uh, and uh, and stop. And, and it's hard at first because I can just, I love cars. You know, I, I read Car and Driver. I see some review for some 700 horsepower mid-engine fucking, oh yeah, the new Z06 vet. Oh fuck, that'd be great, right? No, that's wrong. That is not game B. Uh, you know, and don't buy fancy shit at fancy stores, right? Uh, you know, pair of pants and a shirt's just fine. You don't need to go to some fucking place and pay $200 for a pair of jeans and uh, $300 for a shirt and $1,000 for a jacket. You don't need that shit. It's bad for the world, bad for everything. So gradually uh, uh, wean yourself away. Start teaching yourself some useful actual skills like uh, gardening or uh, weaving or sewing or uh, small building construction or electricianing and plumbing, et cetera. Uh, learn something actually useful, uh, whether, you'll, whether it'll be needful or not in a proto B. Maybe it will, maybe it won't, but it will actually uh, 
start returning you to a more humane way of dealing with your universe. When everything you do is virtual and you're like three or four levels deep in the Boudrillard simulation, as we like to say in Game B, uh, you know, you're losing track of who you are. Your, your hands are really important, actually, to how you uh, deal with the world. So do something, something, do something useful with your hands. Uh, and then, of course, find the others. Find the others locally in your own neighborhood. Do potluck dinners. Start babysitting clubs, right? Uh, a layout, there's like 16 different things that you can do uh, uh, before you even formally uh, join up with the Game B world to get yourself ready. And then when you, uh, and then, and now we have our own online community, uh, game-b.org. Uh, and you can, that, there's a link to that on the gamebfilm.org site as well. So if you really want to get started, uh, read the film, uh, read the essay, A Journey to Game B, and then come to our website and say, hey, I'm here, people. Howdy, howdy. Let's do something, right? Yeah, love it. We'll include all of those links in the show notes so people can easily find their way through them. Uh, Jim, we're coming up on time here, and I want to respect yours. But before we go, are there any any other things you'd like to talk about, promote, or maybe some closing thoughts you'd like to just share? Yeah, I think, I think this is the most important one, mm -hmm. that we must be optimistic, uh, that we are in a dark place, right? And uh, things could go wrong, but they're still under our control. And I think that this is the gateway drug to game Venus, is to realize that game A did not come down on the stone tablets uh, with Moses at Mount Sinai. Uh, you know, I've tracked back the history of these ideas, almost all of them, and they are, uh, to an amazing degree, frozen accidents, right? You know, you know the, the establishment of the Bank of England, I still am just amazed at how uh, astoundingly important that was been to everything that's happened since, and yet it was done for completely local reasons, right? It could have easily been done uh, otherwise, it's also quite imaginable that we never develop nuclear weapons, for instance, but be, but because of the way, the exact way the wars worked out, exactly when they happened with respect to our technical capability, we had them, right? Uh, and, and so the world is highly contingent. All of our institutions were created by other humans, uh, oftentimes for very local op optimistic, I mean, uh, locally optimizing things like the Bank of Fank, famous Bank of England case. Uh, generally, they were not conspiracies. Sometimes they were small scale conspiracies like the establishment of Federal Reserve Banking System. Yeah, that one's a bit of a conspiracy there, actually, it turns out. But it's generally not the way to bet. Uh, mostly it's frozen accidents in evolutionary history, which means optimistically, we can change it, right? We could completely change our monetary system if we wanted to. So, so anyway, that's the gateway drug. All this stuff, the good, and there's a lot of good, and we're yeah. not going to throw away the good. I want dentistry, right? You know, I, you know, I want clean water. I want the knowledge that you should shit downhill from where you take the water out of the river, you know, things that we didn't know until about 1870, amazingly enough. I want to keep all that good stuff. Uh, but the stuff that's bad, you know, this allowing money on money return to crush all values, right? Uh, you know, allowing children to be given fucking smartphones with TikTok on them, you know, shit like that. We just say no it's under our power god damn it uh, and that's the gateway drug to game b to realize that all this stuff was human creation that could be changed by humans there you go i love it i love the optimism jim there are a thousand hours i feel like that we could continue on to this but uh i'll i appreciate the hour that i've been given so thank you for your time man well thank you and thank you for the good preparation you did and the excellent questions